today I'd like to welcome to the PodMD studio Dr. Deirdre Percy. Deirdre is an obstetrician and gynaecologist who has a special interest in high risk and in normal pregnancy, pre-pregnancy planning and sexual health. Today we'll be discussing the topic of hyperemesis. We do hope that you enjoy this podcast, but please remember that the advice given here is of a general nature and is not intended as specific advice about any given patient. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the doctor, not PodMD. If you do have a patient on whom you require specific advice, then please seek that advice from a colleague with appropriate expertise in the area. Deirdre, thanks for talking with us today on PodMD. Thank you, Sean. Deirdre, the topic for today's discussion is hyperemesis. I think everyone understands that women tend to get some nausea in early pregnancy, but can you tell us when we consider that severe enough to call it hyperemesis and think of it as a medical problem? So hyperemesis is really nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. And in fact, to some degree, it occurs in up to 90% of pregnancies and usually lasts to around 9 or 10 weeks and then starts to subside. And for most people, they're remarkably better by 14 to 15 weeks' time. Deirdre, hyperemesis is probably more commonly termed morning sickness. Can you tell us a bit about morning sickness and what you regard as mild or moderate or severe symptoms? So mild morning sickness would be feeling nauseated at some point during the day, not necessarily in the morning. And it might be associated with gagging, um, having some acid reflux symptoms, or um, vomiting. And sometimes the vomiting is at night, sometimes it's first thing in the morning. It really can be any time of day. So the name morning sickness is a bit of a misnomer. In 1-3% to of patients, they have very severe ongoing hyperemesis where they're vomiting multiple times a day and it doesn't ease off after the 10 to 11 week time period. And in that case, it may continue on for the bulk of the pregnancy. And for those women, it's a very debilitating and distressing condition. A lot of them are unable to work. They're unable to look after their other children. Uh, they, they get very depressed because they're sitting around feeling sick and nauseated and miserable. It can certainly affect their ability to eat normally and their ability to stay hydrated. Deirdre, can hyperemesis actually have an effect on the unborn child? It's rare for it to cause significant problems to the pregnancy, and I think one of the management things we need to look at is reassuring people that even if they're not eating the healthiest diet and they're snacking on slightly unusual foods, that the baby really has a lot of resources in terms of the maternal nutrition to pull on, and the baby's quite small at the start of the pregnancy, So it's rare for this to cause significant problems for the baby unless it's very severe and untreated. Most women uh, in pregnancy will be seeing their GP regularly as well as their obstetrician. What can the general practitioner do to assist in the management of this problem? For the milder end of the spectrum, it's very important to acknowledge how miserable they can be and to offer support. And for a lot of women, some time off work might be necessary to help them when they're feeling unwell and not well hydrated. And then they can concentrate on resting at home and keeping their hydration up. I would encourage women to use any method they can to maintain hydration. So they can chew ice cubes, they can suck icy poles, they can use slushies, smoothies, soups. Anything that is watery and liquidy will increase their hydration, even if it's not purely drinking. Um, A lot of women find that they gag if they drink water, so diluted cordials um, or other diluted drinks that are not plain water might be better and some people prefer to use fizzy water uh, and they find that that seems to settle their stomach more and they can keep that down. I really encourage people to take time off work if they need to 
And I also encourage them to self-manage. So they might know they're worse in the morning and better in the afternoon or vice versa. And they can focus their efforts on eating and drinking at the time of day where they can best tolerate it. But with the aim of over the course of the day trying to get sufficient food and fluid in. The most important thing is to maintain their hydration. And we worry about the nutrition aspect of it only if it goes on past the 16 to 20 week mark. If you're in doubt about how hydrated the patient is, we usually ask questions about their urine output, how much volume they've managed to drink, and you can weigh them because changes in their weight will be largely reflecting changes in their hydration status. Um, you can test urine for ketones, uh, and it's worth in someone who's unwell with significant hyperemesis to check a urine test for UTI, uh, to check maybe a full blood count liver function test and a thyroid function test. We like to do an ultrasound because some of these women are more sick because they have a multiple pregnancy or because they have gestational trophoblastic disease. It is possible to have quite nasty morning sickness and have a miscarriage culminate from that pregnancy. Uh, and so it's good to check the baby's actually viable uh, before you're encouraging them to continue on putting up with their morning sickness. Thank you, Deirdre. Those pointers will certainly make it much easier for any of us to assess a patient who has hyperemesis. My next question for you is about medication for this problem, and in particular, uh, what advice can you give a general practitioner about prescribing for hyperemesis? Well, I think we can really reassure women that the medications that we offer for morning sickness are actually safe, uh, and that for some women they need to take multiple different medications to really have a good effect, that one single medica medication may not fix the problem for them. Uh, and also, we aim to make them feel a little bit better and be able to tolerate oral intake rather than fix the problem completely so they feel normal. And I think if you encourage women that they're not necessarily going to feel normal, but they'll be able to drink more and not need referral to hospital for IV hydration, that that's a good aim in itself. Um, and the types of medication that we'd be offering in first line would be things like pyridoxine, which is vitamin B6. And they can get that in combination with ginger and various formulations. We'd offer Maxilon, which is metoclopramide, or Stematol, Procorpirazine, and these are commonly prescribed things that everyone's very familiar with. Um, I wouldn't combine those two together because the side effects may be more pronounced if you're using both of those at the same time. Uh, for patients who are really vomiting a lot, we use Ondansetron, which is Zofran, and the oral wafers are very useful because they don't throw them up. They just dissolve in the mouth and they get the effect of the medication. And I usually start people on four milligrams of Zofran wafer or equivalent brand um, two to three times a day. But that may be in combination with something else like the pyridoxine and the metoclopramide. Ondansetron is very good for stopping actual vomiting and allowing people to drink, but they will still feel nauseated and pretty rubbish and it won't make them feel 100% better. Um, the side effect of it is constipation, and again, that needs to be managed as well because they can end up becoming very constipated with not eating well, poor hydration, and the other medications we're giving them on top of that. We also use Restivit, which is doxyalamine, and that's an antihistamine that has some antiemetic effect. And I give that to people at night, usually half a tablet, 12.5 milligrams, particularly if they're very unwell in the mornings or they're vomiting overnight, and just to have something that's working through the night to keep them settled. And it helps with their sleeping because it is quite sedative. I would be very careful using higher doses because of the sedation effect and also for people using it during the daytime can make them overly sedated. One of the advantages we have now in the hospital side of things is when people are presenting recurrently to hospital for IV hydration and, and really struggling to manage at home, 
we've, a lot of the hospitals now offer a hospital in the home service where they get a pick line put in in the hospital and then they're able to be followed up at home and the nurses see them in the home and give them IV hydration and IV antiemetics at home. And that might even be on a daily basis and can go on for those women with severe hyperemesis right through to 24 to 26 weeks of pregnancy with their pick line in situ. And they certainly feel much better if they maintain their hydration. Thank you, Deirdre, for that comprehensive assessment of this problem. I think it is a condition that everyone regards as fairly minor and part of pregnancy, but as you pointed out, it can be a serious and debilitating problem for some. Just to sum things up for our listeners, could you please identify your three key take-home messages from your podcast today on hyperemesis? Uh, my three messages would be to offer support to the woman and encourage them that you know there's no harm is going to come to the pregnancy if they can manage things themselves all the better. I wouldn't be anxious about offering them medications to help them with that, um, with the hyperemesis, within the limits of what medications can do. And I wouldn't hesitate to refer them to hospital or to a specialist or so to access you know, alternative medications and ongoing management if they're really not maintaining their hydration. Deirdre, thanks again for your time and the insights that you've provided. Thank you, Sean. It was lovely.